This morning's sermon text can be found in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ, Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord. So as many of you know, our practice here at Orlando Grace Church is to just walk through books of the Bible. We just, we walk through books of the Bible. Uh, We have a lot of reasons we do that. And this morning I was reminded about how grateful I am that that's what we do. Because we come to a text that if I'm really honest, uh, I and I think a lot of other pastors would be tempted just to skip over. Because we've been in, in these, we've been dealing with some of the most famous and most profound uh, truths of the Christian faith. And then we transition from the most famous verses we have to, I'm sending you Epaphroditus. You know, and, it, and it's tempting to just want to skip over verses like this and get to these other ones that are more famous. But as I wrestled with this text this morning, I became really thankful that that's not what we do because we know that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and this passage is certainly no exception. But we do need to know a little bit of the context to be able to appreciate what it is that Paul's saying. So in, in the context, the Philippian church, if you've been here, we've talked about, is suffering. They're experiencing increased persecution, and that persecution, it seems, if you look to, you know, if you read between the lines in, these, in the verses of this letter, it seems like it's having an effect on the church. And, and there might be some fragmenting happening in Philippi. And so Philippi, I mean, the, would, the leaders, you would think the most logical person to turn to was the guy who started the church, Paul, but he's in prison in Rome. So what do they do? They send this guy Epaphroditus to go and minister to Paul's needs. And, and we don't know this for certain, but most all the scholars that you read, they agree. The feeling here is, hey, if we give you Epaphroditus, could we get Timothy? We could, we could really use him right now. Epaphroditus will take great care of you, but we need Timothy. And so on the surface, you look at these texts and Paul is saying, no, you're going to get Epaphroditus back. I'm keeping Timothy. 
but he's doing something really brilliant in the way that he does this. He, he includes it at this point in the, in the text for a very strategic reason. He does it because he's been talking about what it looks like to be a joyful, unifying Christian. That's what he's been teaching for two chapters. And now he gets to lift two guys up and say, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a joyful, unifying Christian. I want to praise Timothy and Epaphroditus so that you'll see what it is that I'm talking about and maybe be a little more appreciative for getting Epaphroditus back. So what is it that Paul says about being a joyful, unifying Christian? What is it that these two men embody that he wants all of us to learn from? And I think it's primarily three things. A joyful, unifying Christian is sensitive to others, serves the interests of Christ, and is willing to sacrifice. So those are the three things I see in this passage, and I want to I develop them. So first, sensitive to others. You know, as Paul writes, you can, you can just feel this, I think, this aura of sensitivity when it comes to Timothy and Epaphroditus. And when I say sensitive, I don't mean like brittle. You know, you got to walk on eggshells and you say the wrong thing and they'll fall apart. They're really sensitive people. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying that these, that these two men are tenderhearted. They're caring. They're empathetic. They feel what you feel. You know, I think in our, modern, in our modern words, we might say they have a high EQ, a high emotional quotient. They can go into some place and understand what's going on, understand how people feel. And these are the kinds of people you send into relationally messy situations <laughs> because they have a high ability to go in, to build trust, to break down walls, and to figure out a path forward. And Paul, speaking about Timothy, he says, for I have no one like him. And, and it's really important to see why Timothy is so special, who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. All right, I think that's the key to the sensitivity, this being genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, being able to put aside our insecurities and jealousies and hopes and aspirations and fears, all the things that we feel, being able to put them aside so that we can enter into a situation and really feel what other people are feeling. That's what makes somebody empathetic. That's what some, makes somebody sensitive because they're able to put, they're genuinely concerned for the welfare of others before themselves. So when I think of a a sensitive person, it's the kind of person you could sit down with for one hour and walk away and say, he gets me. He understands me. That, I think, encapsulates what it is to be sensitive and what it is that he's trying to draw out and to tout about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I think that's what is behind verse 22 here. Paul says, Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. As a son. You know, there are these golden years of having children where, where a son just wants to be excited about whatever his dad's excited about. He just wants to work alongside his dad. He wants to please his dad. And, and we may have to record these moments to believe they were true at one point, but they were true. And I, I remember, I've got one boy sitting over here. When he was three, I was mowing the lawn and he had his little baby lawnmower. And we had a pretty long little front yard and I had my push mower and he was right behind me in his. And he was wearing himself out trying to mow the lawn with daddy. And we went back and forth and back and forth. I began to count how many rows he did with me. 10 rows across our long front yard. And he was, he was worn out, 
but he was doing it because he was so excited to do it. The love of a son to serve his father and that kind of spirit is what Paul is drawing out in Timothy here in his service to the gospel with Paul. But Timothy's not alone in it. Epaphroditus, he shows the same kind of sensitivity. So he's gravely ill in Paul's words. And what's his main concern? Not only does he long for Philippi, but he's worried that the Philippian church would worry too much about him when he's sick. And this goes against the way we're naturally wired. We're wired to want the spotlight on us. We're wired to to want people to be concerned for us. And this is an extreme case, but... I knew a guy in college who faked cancer because he wanted the concern to be on him. But that is the wiring that all of us have if we're not aware of it. We want the concern on us, but a sensitive person, they want to make sure, they have more concern about the regard and the, the feelings of other people before themselves. And for that reason, Epaphroditus on death's doorstep is mainly concerned that the Philippian church might have undue stress. That's a sensitive person. And so it comes as no surprise that these are the kinds of guys Paul wants to be in churches around the empire. (laughs) These are the kinds of guys he's sending. Paul said in his words, I will have lower anxiety knowing that Epaphroditus is with you. I have a a really good friend. He worked for a very large missions organization. And when there was a a crisis somewhere around the world, usually it was a relational crisis on a mission team somewhere, he was one of the first people that they sent in to that situation. And he was sent because he had such a unique ability to be sensitive to the situation. He was able to listen before he speaks. He was able to build trust quickly. He was able to discern all the motives of the room because he had checked his own motives. And I won't... (laughs) I won't deny that this man was born with some natural interpersonal gifting. (laughs) I think that is very true. But what what Paul is talking about here is not a gifting issue. You can't can't say, be more gifted (laughs) and just grow in your gifting. You know, Paul's telling us we need to do something. It's It's not a gifting issue. And I know this because I have seen some of the most socially awkward people I know become very, very sensitive people and very effective catalysts for peace in their church. So it's not a a matter of social gifting. For what it's worth, that's the the category I have Paul in. (laughs) I imagine Paul is a very socially awkward individual who was full of every, every part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So I don't think it's a gifting issue. But before we talk about what it is, we need to ask ourselves, are we a sensitive person? And, and I think the best diagnostic that I can come up with is, are we a person who naturally produces strife or are we naturally a person who reduces strife? And then I would take it one step farther. How would other people in your life answer that question about you? Where, where you go, is strife produced or is strife reduced? There's a, uh, well, I, I will say we've already seen ins- insensitivity in this letter. We've seen insensitivity in chapter one when people are preaching the gospel out of false motives. They're, they're wanting to use their ministry to, out of genuine concern for themselves, not others, so that they can gain value, so that they can gain influence in the church. And that insensitivity is causing harm. That insensitivity is causing divide. And so what Paul is wanting us to see is sensitivity is what we need. And, and we see this play out in the church 
often. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a pastor named Alistair Begg. I don't know how many of you have heard of him. He's a pastor of a very large church. And, and I remember hearing him say once that, that when someone in his church begins to show a lot of initiative, the challenge for him is to, to quickly discern whose welfare are you genuinely interested in? Are, are you doing this to gain influence yourself? Are you mostly concerned about your own influence? Or are you, really in, are you really concerned with the influence of others and the exaltation of Christ? Because how I deal with you, <laughs> how I answer that question has, a great, has great weight on what we do. I need to discern, are you somebody I give influence to very quickly? Or are you somebody that we kind of lock away to the side until you start showing concern for other people's interests? Because sensitivity will cause a church to flourish and insensitivity will fracture it. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I would love to grow in my sensitivity. (laughs) There's good news. It's not a gifting issue, it's a gospel issue. There is this very logical and proven process that when, that as people believe the gospel more deeply, that as we meditate on the gospel more frequently, we will grow in our sensitivity. Because what we're doing in those moments, we're, we're acknowledging the sensitivity of Christ towards us. Christ, who, who cared more about our welfare. Christ, who left all the comforts and all, whatever it is in heaven that he got to experience, the honor, the fame, everything. He left it coming down to here to serve us, to go to the cross for us, to take on the wrath of God for us. The more we understand his sensitivity, the more we get his sensitivity towards us, the more we're going to grow in our own sensitivity. It's not a gifting issue, it's a gospel issue. And this is exactly what Paul means when he says to the Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, how? As God in Christ forgives you. So there is this direct connection between the extent that we understand God's forgiveness and sensitivity towards us and our ability to give out that sensitivity to other people. This week, I, I got to see a really sweet example of sensitivity in this church. I was visiting a community group, and my plan, my hope is to visit all the community groups. This has been a slower process than, than I imagined. But I was with this community group, and one man there was talking about uh, how, just how OGC feels very different these days. I mean, I'm, and, and it wasn't all easy. <laughs> you know, I mean, just having me up here every week is a big difference, and, and there are new faces coming in and out the doors. And this man was saying, you know, I so look forward to church because I get to connect with people that I've known for over a decade. And I just so, look so forward to connecting with these old friends. But I'm having to put that desire aside to make sure that I'm welcoming all these new guests. And I thought in that moment, that's the kind of sensitivity Paul is putting on display here. That's the kind of sensitivity that unites a church. That is a joyful, unifying Christian saying these things. So, a joyful, unifying Christian is sensitive. And then secondly, he or she serves the interests of Christ. So you see in verse 21 that Paul has a problem. He's got a big problem. And his problem is that he has no one else like Timothy. He says, I have no one else like him. And we all have quirky friends that we might say something like, oh, there's, there's no one else like him. 
That's not what Paul's saying here about Timothy. He's literally saying there is no one else like him who can do what I need him to do. And I don't know what it is he needed Timothy to do. Uh, it, could, it could be chapter one that as this selfish preaching develops that he needs Timothy to address it. Maybe there's a, an issue in Rome that required hands-on ministering that Paul wasn't able to give because he was in prison at the time. Maybe he just wanted Timothy by his side to see, is this going to result in my death or not? If it is, I need to execute a lot of orders very fast. We don't know what it is, but we know for whatever, whatever it is, he needed Timothy there. But we also need to see that the quality that required Timothy to stay is the same quality that required Epaphroditus to go back. And that quality is that they serve the interests of Christ. Verse 21, it's pretty clear. For they all, everyone else, they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. That's what makes Timothy and Epaphroditus different. They serve the interests of Christ. And this is why Paul says to Epaphroditus, or to the Philippian church about Epaphroditus. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. So the question we need to ask is what does this service look like? What, what, what is this service that Timothy and Epaphroditus are embodying, the service to Christ, practically, what is that? And I think it's three things. I think first, they were available. You know, we, we start with the bar really low, but, but available sounds simple, but that's necessary to be of service. We've got to be available. We can, ha- we can know all the right things. We can have the right intentions, but if we're not available, we will not be of any service to Christ. And so in Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see a lot of availability. Timothy, of course, was insanely available because he gave up his whole life <laughs> to come over and serve with Paul. Epaphroditus, though, is a slightly different thing, and, and it's hard because th- we... Largely, everything we know about Epaphroditus is from, from this letter. We don't know a lot. We don't ne- know nearly as much as we know about Timothy. But we get the sense that Epaphroditus was a layperson, maybe an elder, who was simply available enough to make this long trip to Rome to minister to Paul's needs and maybe stay for, for some long amount of time after that. We don't know, but we do know that Paul calls Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And what we have here is this ascending scale of honor that he's giving Epaphroditus. And with this ascending scale of honor also comes an ascending scale of availability. So first he calls him a brother, all right? All you have to do to be a brother is to believe and be a male. You don't have to be available to anybody. But then to be a fellow worker, that requires some availability to be able to work with people, to minister alongside people in the church. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes to fellow soldier. And the difference between a worker and a soldier is a soldier is available in a true time of crisis. And every crisis situation that I've been a part of has required a huge amount of availability for the people ministering to them in that time. So when we see this ascending scale of honor, we see this ascending scale of availability and we know both Timothy and Epaphroditus were very available to serve Christ. And whenever I talk about availability, inevitably there's somebody in the room who's thinking something like, well, Jim, I, I have all these kids at home, you know, or I have, I'm helping with my grandkids, or I'm, I'm a single mom and I'm, I'm working two jobs and I feel guilty when I look at this passage about availability because I'm not very avail- available. 
And to that person, if you're here this morning, I want to tell you, you're very available. You're available to the mission-critical job that you're called to, that in many cases, only you can make happen. You're called to serve your family. You're called to provide for your family. And that is how you're using your availability. We're not to look at availability and simply think, am I doing X, Y, and Z on Sunday at church or outside of Sunday at church? What we're supposed to do when we look at this text and measure our availability or consider our availability is to look at what we're making ourselves available to. Are we making ourselves available to the things that are in line with the mission of Jesus Christ? Because your kids are definitely a part of that. (laughs) Or are we making ourselves available to things that are mostly in line for the mission to do what we want to do with our life? That's how we consider our availability. But we have to be available if we want to be of service to Christ. All right, secondly, we can't just be available, we need to be reliable. Okay, we can be all the available in the world, but if we're not reliable, we're not going to be of much service. I can remember being at Boone High School, and my teacher asked, we were all working on something, she said, is anybody available to run something down to the office? And of course, immediately my hand was up. And she just kept looking. Anyone else? Because she, she knew I was available, but she didn't think I was reliable. She didn't know what I was going to do once I was outside that classroom. <laughs> so we need to be available and reliable. And we see that Paul and Epaphroditus were reliable. Paul says that Timothy has this proven worth. This is the reason that, that Paul's eager to send Epaphroditus to Philippi. They were, they were reliable. There are people that you assign a job and you just know it's going to get done. And then there are people you assign a job and you know you're going to have to continually follow up with them to make sure that job gets done. If we're going to be of service, we need to be available and we need to be reliable. And then thirdly, we need to be teachable. And if there was ever an example of teachability in the Bible, it has to be Timothy. I mean, he grew up being taught the scriptures by his mom and his grandmother. He worked at Paul's side for at least 10 years. There are two whole letters in the Bible that are nothing but teaching Timothy. And my goodness, he was circumcised as an adult, having been raised as a Greek. If there's anything else that that makes somebody teachable, I don't know what it is, but Timothy was all in. Timothy was a picture of teachable. We can be available and reliable, but so unteachable that we are of no service to Jesus Christ. Because at the core of unteachability is pride. At the core of unteachability is a desire to serve ourselves, not others, not Christ. A desire to be right more than a desire to be taught. A desire to speak more than a desire to listen. And so when we come to this teachability issue... I have some diagnostics for us to consider. Are we very teachable? And so first, I want to say what teachability is not. It does not mean that you need to agree with me on everything. If you agree with me, then you're teachable. That's not teachable. You can be, agree with me on everything and not be teachable. You can disagree with me on a lot of things and and be very teachable. That's not what teachability is. Here are three diagnostics I came up with. First, if you live in a world where everyone around you is wrong and you're the only person who seems to be right, you might not be teachable. (laughs) Secondly, if someone offers you a critique and your knee-jerk is always defensiveness, 
you might not be teachable. And then thirdly, if you like to learn on your own a whole lot, but you don't like to be taught by someone else, you might not be teachable. Some of the smartest, most educated people I know are some of the most teachable people because they want to learn from anybody they can. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing opinion. That is not teachability. But if we are teachable, if we do primarily concern ourselves with the welfare of others, if we want critique in our life, if we have a soft heart that always believes there's something somebody else in the church can offer me, there's something somebody in the church can teach me, then the sky's the limit for the ways that you can serve Jesus Christ. The main question I ask myself when I'm trying to discern, am I being teachable or are the people I'm around being teachable is simple. Do they ask more questions than give more answers? That's the way that I discern my heart in this, in this arena and frankly the way that I do process other people too as well. We need to be available, reliable, and teachable if we're going to be of service to Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we need to be willing to sacrifice. Both of these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, were willing to sacrifice everything. They were willing to sacrifice the very, their very lives. Epaphroditus, in making this journey from Philippi to Rome, made a huge sacrifice. That was, even in the days of the Roman roads and the Pax Romana, that was a dangerous journey. And, and probably Epaphroditus got sick along that journey. He was gravely ill when he arrived in Rome. And this is the reason Paul says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking, what was lacking in your service to me. And everybody kind of gets tripped up right there. Like, what, how were the Philippians lacking? I want to know what they do. Likely, what Paul is saying is simply, it'd be as if in our modern day language, we say, well, if there was ever any question about your faithfulness and service to me, you sure answered it in sending Epaphroditus. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. But to understand, to understand and be sacrifice and to be motivated to sacrifice we have to understand what a christian view of sacrifice is because if we misunderstand a christian view of sacrifice we're either going to become some depressed monk or some insufferable martyr and what i mean by that is we're going to take on this sacrifice and we are either going to break under the weight of this sacrifice or we're going to puff our chest out because we want everyone in the world to know all the ways that we're sacrificing Both would be a gross misunderstanding of the Christian view of sacrifice. So to understand sacrifice, we need to turn left in our Bibles most of the way back and go back to Moses. And when we get to the Mosaic law, we see this language of sacrifice over and over and over. We see that the people of God would bring things like pigeons and sheep and bulls to sacrifice. And we know that they understood Their sin deserved punishment. They understood that. There's a penalty to our sin, and that penalty is death. But we also know from from Hebrews 10 that the Old Testament believers, they did not believe that their sin was fully atoned for in the blood of goats and bulls. So why is it that they were sacrificing? (laughs) They were sacrificing because that was their worship. They were worshiping, and when they did this, 
they saw that these animals, they represent God's willingness to take a, to take, take a substitutional sacrifice. These, these sacrifices represented God's willingness to show us grace and to maintain a relationship with us while we are yet sinning. And, and they didn't know what these sacrifices were point, pointing towards, but they knew they were pointing to something more sufficient. That's why Paul calls these sacrifices a shadow. You know, you, you, can, you can have a shadow cast. Even if you don't know what's casting the shadow, you know it's there because the shadow's here. And Paul's saying these sacrifices were a type of shadow. They didn't know the substance, but we do. The substance is Jesus Christ. It Their sacrifices were pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so they were worshiping as they sacrificed, believing that God was going to provide something more sufficient down the road. And he did in providing Jesus Christ. So that's the reason that we don't have animal sacrifices here on a Sunday morning, but it doesn't mean we don't have sacrifices We now provide a living sacrifice as we worship. And this is what Paul's talking about to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. One of the main ways we worship is by sacrificing our rights and our desires for what God wants us to be. This was the whole sermon last week, dying to ourselves so that we can live for Christ, dying for ourselves so that we can live for Christ. And this dying process, that's the sacrifice. (laughs) And I love how one old preacher said, the problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to crawl off the altar. It's easier to sacrifice a dead animal than it is to sacrifice what we want in this world. But that's the way that we worship so that everyone around us can see through our lives that Jesus is Lord. And when the Old Testament believers, when they worshiped through animal sacrifice, they were pointing forward to a better sacrifice. When we worship through living sacrifice, we're pointing forward to a better life. We're pointing forward to an eternal life where Jesus' reign is acknowledged in every corner of this universe. And the main difference in our understanding of sacrifice and probably every other worldview out there is that our sacrifice, our living sacrifice, it isn't fueled by guilt or fear. It's fueled by love and joy. This is what Jesus modeled and that's what we're to understand and follow. And I don't know where it could be more clear than Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the fear, guilt, love, joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus sacrificed for us out of joy and love, and the more we embrace and understand that joy and love, the more we're gonna want to sacrifice, the more we're gonna want to serve. Which leads me to my main test that we have to evaluate how we're doing in sacrificing for Jesus. The way I test myself is I ask myself, does it feel like a sacrifice? Does it feel like a sacrifice? Have you ever heard of the names David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, 
or Samuel Zwimmer. They have a lot in common, but three main things. First, they were some of the most well-known and influential and successful missionaries of the modern era. Second, they endured sacrifices in their life that most of us would consider to be unimaginable. And third, in one way or another, all of them said, I made no sacrifice. The joy that they had in serving Jesus Christ made it feel to them like they weren't making a sacrifice. The more joy we have in our hearts for those we serve, the less of a sacrifice it feels like. The more love we have in our hearts, the more sacrifice we have in our worship. That's the Christian view of sacrifice. It comes out of a deep sense of joy and love. And the more we understand it, the less it actually feels like a sacrifice. These are the things that motivated Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are the qualities that Paul is wanting to put on display. Are they sensitive to others? Are we sensitive to others? Are we servants to Christ? Are we willing to sacrifice? And I can't think of a better way to process that question than to take the Lord's Supper. So in just a moment, we're gonna do that. I'll talk more in a moment, but my hope is that we will evaluate ourselves, consider our souls, and want to live a life that is fruitful for Jesus Christ, learning from the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for for the way that you've organized everything, that Sundays is something that we get to do, that sacrificing is something that we get to do. We don't have to do anything. You've already done everything that matters. Now we just get to enjoy it. But because sin is still in us, it's hard. It's hard to want what you want. And, and we want to ask this morning that you would work in our hearts, that you would, in, in a way that we can only explain as supernatural, open our hearts to give us a desire to, to die to ourselves and to live for you. Because if you don't do that, then, then nothing's going to happen. But we pray that we would have a deep willingness to pursue those desires, to flesh out those desires, and to see them realized more and more over the course of the rest of our life. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.